I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Darawal people. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. The thing I loved about going to Shore and Smith and being in meetings was that you weren't the smartest person in the room and I wasn't the second smartest person in the room or the third or the fourth or the fifth and it was just full of these amazing wine brains and people that I was like, oh my gosh, there's so much for me to learn about here again. This is the Over the Glass podcast. I'm Shante Whale. New Year's Eve celebrates the closing of one year and the welcoming of another. The possibilities, the dreams and new hopes. It all comes together to create an atmosphere of anticipation and excitement. Whether you spend it with your work colleagues, family, friends, or even strangers, it's a time for toasting and looking skyward to the future. Cavita Fayella is known both on the international beverage stage as sommelier and influential personality. With extensive experience across Asia as buyer, leader, trainer, Cavita has also been successful at founding her own wine merchant company. With success at every turn, she now holds the title of State and Marketing Manager at Shaw and Smith, Tollpuddle and the other Wine Co. Hi, Kavita. Thanks for joining me. Hi. How are you today? This is such a crazy time of the year and a little bit different for you this year. How's December treating you? Oh, yeah, it's um, definitely different to usual. So I'm on um, maternity leave. Um, so, yes, December is usually a pretty crazy time of year and it's it's pretty bizarre just having a kind of quiet close to the year it's obviously busy with lots of family get-togethers and things like that but it's strange not having all of the kind of crazy work stuff going on at the same time absolutely and with your gorgeous boy does everybody just want a piece of you but this time also just want a piece of Kian instead of uh (laughs) wanting and demanding your time yeah, I'm getting used to turning up to things with Kian and everyone just like honing straight in on him and being like, oh, yeah, that's right. I'm here too. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's cool. I'm fine to pay backstage to Kian. It's no problem. <laughs> well, he is probably the cutest child that I've ever seen. So I can completely understand that. <laughs> how are you finding um, How are you finding maternity leave? And, wh- and when do you hen- head back to work? Yeah, so I had Kian at the end of January. So I've been off this whole year, um, which has been really amazing. Um, uh, And I head back to work on the 1st of February. So just the last few weeks of maternity leave now. Um, So I'm just trying to kind of make the most of them and um, spend as much time with him as possible. And then, yeah, he'll go, uh, he'll start daycare um, in the middle of January and we'll kind of integrate him in on that front. And then, yeah, I kick off on 1st of February and I am definitely looking forward to getting back to work at the same time and using my brain to, you know, do things besides measure formula scoops and sleep times and wake windows and all of that kind of stuff. So I'm, um, I'm looking forward to using my other side of my brain, that's for sure. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily sound like it's any less stressful at this time of the year for you. No way. I've been doing like the hardest job of my I've ever done in my entire life for the last year. Yeah. <laughs> I need a holiday. Yeah, I, I think you totally do. Tell me a little bit about um, your role as sales and marketing manager of Shore and Smith Tollpuddle and the other wine co um, for all those people out there that don't know. 
what you do. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I work as the sales and marketing manager um, and I've been with Shaw and Smith for several years now. I initially started working with Shaw and Smith um, as a consultant. So when I had my own business, um, Voyager Selections, I was working to um, facilitate people in the or producers in the Asia market. And so that's where I started working with Sharon Smith initially. And then slowly but surely that just became more and more and more of my time. Um, and then I decided that, you know, I just, you know, when you get to see the behind the scenes of lots of different producers, I just loved working with them and their operation and all the people there. And so yeah, it was a bit of a natural fit to kind of progressively become 100% of my time for me. And so, yeah, I've been full-time with them for about the last three years. I mean, you've had the most incredible um, career so far with so many different aspects. So I, I want to touch on little bits of those um, because I really think that it's a great example of people that get into perhaps hospitality and think, well, what are the jobs that I can do in this industry? And I think what you have done over your career can really showcase just all the different facets and, and if you're successful at one one element, where it can lead you. Um, and I don't necessarily want to put you on the spot, but can you tell me a little bit about kind of how you got involved um, as being a sommelier and kind of, you know, the ebbs and flows of where you've got to now? Yeah, so... Being a sommelier is obviously not a job they tell you about at high school. Um, uh, and I initially wanted to be a doctor. Um, so I was studying at university. Um, and at the time, um, I was working uh, at a restaurant in the city. Um, and I come from the Sutherland Shire. So it was my first time kind of working in a, a fancy restaurant. And I didn't even know that sommeliers existed. My family had never kind of eaten in restaurants with sommeliers and I don't come from a wine kind of family in that sense. Um, we always ate, you know, Lebanese and Greek restaurants and that kind of thing. Um, and so, yeah, I was like, oh, there's this person that only has to talk about the wine in this restaurant. That's a pretty good geek. Um, and I slowly just became more and more fascinated with what Glenn, who's a sommelier at that, in that restaurant coast was doing. And I just thought there was so much that he had to learn about and remember. And I obviously have this brain that's good at memorizing things because I was, you know, studying all this medical stuff and thought I could memorize all of this stuff. There's a lot to learn about. Um, and it just became kind of, I just loved going to work more than I did university in the end. And I thought, how do you, you know, what do you have to study? Because I was so used to, you know, studying things. I was like, what course do you have to do to be able to be this sommelier? Um, and it wasn't really much out there that you could officially study at that time. You know, we're talking about almost 20 years ago now. Um, uh, that ages me a little bit, doesn't it? Um, uh, and, <laughs> um, uh, and so... I feel uh, I kind of was looking into what you could study and I found that there was a course at Ride TAFE at the time that you could do, which was like a certificate for in hospitality, but specializing in wine. Um, and so I pitched to the owner of Coast at the time that I wanted to do like a sommelier ship. I could see that there was all these chefs in the kitchen doing chef apprenticeships and I wanted to do a sommelier ship. And um, he agreed and said that he would pay me like, you know, like a chef to go to that day of the course. And um, it was a real kind of like sliding doors moment in my life, I guess, in that at that point, 
I decided that I didn't want to go to university anymore. I was going to work full time. I loved this restaurant that I was working in and the people I was working with and I was going to be studying. So that felt good on that front. And um, I was learning about all this different stuff. And so, yeah, I kind of that was how I got into everything. And I finished the course and then I was working as a sommelier at Coast and Manta. Um, and at that time, um, John Osbeeson, who was the owner of Ultimo Wine Centre at that time or Sellers, was um, I got to meet him and um, I was, you know, going on Saturdays and trying to learn as much as I could about European wine because at that time, you know, wine lists were heavily Australian and New Zealand and there wasn't a huge amount of international wine on our wine list and I was just trying to soak everything up I could and he told me that his friend who was a master of wine, Ron Giorgio, who was a consultant to the Hilton group, um, was looking for a female sommelier in specific for this property in the Maldives and I was like, oh yeah, Google where is the Maldives and I was like, oh yeah, that looks pretty cool and you get all these beautiful photos and I was like, oh yeah, I think I could do that. Um, and so I can remember going and having this interview with this master of wine. It would have been the first master of wine I'd ever met and um, obviously did a good job of talking myself up. I think I was 21 um, and yeah, got the job. And so next thing you know, what I was on a plane with two suitcases and all of my wine books because I had to kind of take all my books because I was like, I don't know anything. So everything had to be in the books. And so, yeah, arrived in the Maldives and was you know the deep end of the swimming pool for me I had seven restaurants and three bars and you know 100 F&B staff that I had to train um and a million dollars worth of inventory and a fully international wine list with probably about 10 Australian wines on it instead of you know the other way around and yeah it was just a you know, the kickoff point for me. And from there, yeah, I just spent the next decade living and working overseas. It's crazy. I mean, I know I've known you for a while and I know all about your experience, but it's still crazy to hear it. I mean, at 21, gosh, I didn't even know, I didn't even know what, what I was mixing with my Jägermeister, you know what I mean? Like, it's just crazy that you had that experience so young and no one really to learn from other than paving the way yourself. It's very different. Um landscape now uh how did you tell me a little bit about the restaurant Ita because it's an incredible restaurant I remember um seeing you on a on a on a, a video once that was talking about it and uh met you all these years later so tell me a little bit about the experience of working there yeah so Ita is the underwater restaurant that this property had um and it was the first underwater restaurant and yeah, it's pretty surreal. It seats about, I think at the time it's, I don't know how many it sits today, but it's at 12 people. So, you know, um, six, two tops. Um, and you only need to sit two tops in the Maldives because everyone's on their honeymoon on a romantic holiday. Um, so it's definitely not where you're going to meet your, um, your partner. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, and so it's this beautiful restaurant that's basically like this bubble under the water and um, the water is so full of amazing um, marine life that you would have, you would sit there and have dinner and they would light underneath the restaurant. 
And so you would basically, the light would draw the krill um, or the small kind of plankton, and that would obviously then attract, you know, the manta rays and different fish and sharks and things like that. So you would kind of sit there having dinner um, with all this real uh, marine life around you, as opposed to, I think, you know, in Dubai and stuff, they kind of have, you're kind of in a fish tank as such. Um, but this was the real ocean out there. And so, yeah, it would be pretty bizarre. You'd kind of be having a canapé or, you know, starting off with your main course and you'd kind of turn around and there would be like a shark glaring at you. That's totally insane and amazing that it, it could even function, that they were able to kind of um, create that. But um, it sounds amazing and it still exists. Is that right? Yep, exactly. So um, that was the Hilton at the time when I started and while I, whilst I was there, they went through a rebranding process and it became the Conrad. Um, so that's kind of the one of the premium tiers of the Hilton Group. Um, and yeah, it's um, it was pretty, you know, it was just this baptism by fire for me. Um, I think it's one of the biggest accounts of Paul Roger in the world. Um, because, you know, everybody gets a bottle of champagne on arrival. It was 150 rooms. And then obviously when you're on your honeymoon, you drink a lot of champagne. And I kind of went from these restaurants in Sydney to this hotel in the middle of the Indian Ocean or this resort in the middle of the Indian Ocean and, you know, just thought that everywhere consumes champagne like that (laughs) and kind of went on to other things afterwards and went, Wow, no, that was a really successful property. (laughs) One of the best things about the champagne process, like the amount of champagne we were consuming, though, is that we were on Paul Roger's radar so much that every year we got to take three of the staff actually to champagne. Um, And it's pretty phenomenal when you, you know, take three Maldivian team members on a plane for the first time and then you land and they go on a train for the first time and they freak out. It's like, transport where they can't see the driver because in the Maldives obviously it's seaplanes where you're only like six or seven seats back from the from the who the pilot and boats where you can see the captain and so there was so for the the train in the plane for them was so bizarre oh my god I can't I gosh I'd love to have just been there just to see their reactions and see you explain to them how things work yeah equally like seeing cows for the first time in like champagne they were like is that a cow I was like yep that's a cow (laughs) incredible um you then moved on to working with um the Amman resorts and working you worked in like so many different posts throughout that opportunity didn't you yeah so I think Amman resorts was really probably one of the most formative things I've done in my career in that I was based out of Singapore, but I had a regional seller master role. And so I looked after Southeast Asia initially. Um, And so places like, you know, Phuket in Thailand and um, Laos, Cambodia, the Philippines, um, and yeah, kind of went in and out of those properties and setting up the programs and training the staff. And um, I just really loved that job in that the places are, the places where these resorts are located are some of the most beautiful places on the planet and the properties themselves are phenomenal, but equally the staff working within them are all very special. And a lot of them had worked in the properties ever since they opened. So you would go there and you'd say, Oh, how long have you worked here? And they'd say, Oh, 24 years. Um, And just things like that. And, you know, being able to talk to them and train them about something 
like wine, which was so foreign to them. After I'd done Southeast Asia for Amman, I moved and I was based in India and I looked after Southeast Asia and I looked after South Asia and Bhutan was one of my countries. Um, and, you know, you're talking to people about something that they've never even held a bottle of wine, let alone trying to tell them about the characteristics of Chardonnay or Sauvignon Blanc and the difference between a light bodied and a full bodied wine for them, you know, for us, there's so much kind of natural knowledge that comes with, with wine and you know that your mum's drunk it and that white wine goes in the fridge and red wine doesn't, but there's no kind of assumed knowledge with them. And so, um, yeah, I just really loved that experience. And for in a lot of those countries, knowledge is power or knowledge is advancement for them. And so they really loved having the opportunity to learn about something new because it meant that they could potentially get a promotion, which meant a little bit more money, which meant that they could potentially send their kids to a different school or something like that. And so, yeah, it was just a really different scenario to, you know, training teams in Sydney or something where they're like, am I getting paid for this training? <laughs> um, so yeah, I just really loved being able to to do that training and breaking wine right back to its very basics. Um, and so yeah, that was probably the best part about working for Aman, but I worked for them for a long time. Often we say that, you know, talking about wine and learning about wine brings people together over, over a, a meal, but it all but also can be disparate and actually really kind of segregate people. When you did have people that really had different relationships to wine, unlike what we see here perhaps in Australia, what was the focus? How did, how did you get through to them or how did you find a way to, to open that language and communication up about wine? Yeah, so I guess you just have to talk about it as a beverage to start with. And, you know, in the Maldives, for example, the majority of the team were of Muslim faith, so they wouldn't even taste it. So, um, you know, the Nerdivan came in handy where, you know, I was trying to show them all of the different characteristics. They also come from a country where it's, you know, grassy is not assumed knowledge. So they live, they come from sandy islands where grass doesn't grow and they play soccer on AstroTurf. And so that idea of freshly cut grass is not a simple terminology that kind of takes you back to your front yard as an Australian kid. Um, and so there's a lot of characteristics that we use when we talk about wine where you really had to like use things that were logical to them. So light bodied, medium bodied and full bodied was kind of like the difference in texture between water, milk and cream or things like that. And so you just kind of had to get creative and use things that were logical to them. And I guess when you were starting to really develop people in your team, so you would have wine waiters and you were trying to train people up to be sommeliers and stuff like that in the team and take things a little bit further, then you would use kind of examples like coconut, for example, where there's five or six or 10 different aromas that you can talk about when you're talking about coconut, whether it's fresh coconut, coconut water, roasted coconut, all those kind of things. And so it was just about kind of getting creative and thinking about what was logical to them and applying it back onto what's their field of knowledge and things that they know about. And so, yeah, I think you just had to kind of really pay attention to their culture and what they understood and then kind of lay wine under it as a kind of secondary characteristic in that sense, as opposed to coming to it at it from my, my perspective of how I learnt about wine. And so, yeah, it was pretty fun. And then moving to um, Mar New Delhi, a totally different yep. landscape with totally different culture. And I imagine just uh, an abundance of aromas and, and, um, 
different foods that you're looking at. What was your experience like uh, in New Delhi? Yeah, India was the greatest. That was of all the places that I've lived overseas. I would probably say that India was my favorite. Um, and again, that's like, like you said, you would walk out the door and everything, the volume is turned up to a hundred on everything in India. And so you would just be whacked in the face with all of these different aromas and smells. And, you know, you, you look like a professional, every photo that you take, cause there's just this abundance of color and beauty and, you know, intensity in India. Um, and yeah, I just loved everything that I got to do there. Um, and likewise with the staff, they are so hungry for knowledge in India um, and everybody wants to get to the next to the next step and be promoted and become a wine waiter and you know do all of the things and so there I had to be really careful with everything that I ever said in training um, because at that point you would know you would say things off the cuff and then you would walk past a table and hear them saying the exact same thing to another table and you'd just be like yeah maybe don't say exactly what I said in that training session but they would just repeat what you said verbatim and um, yeah you kind of had to like watch yourself there because they would remember every single thing that you said um, but yeah that was an amazing experience and there we had the opportunity to really kind of um, train uh, our team up into sommeliers and I, I can remember going back to the Maldives actually on a holiday um, and walking into a resort that was completely separate from Arman and Conrad and one of my Indian wine team members from the Arman in Delhi was actually the sommelier of that property in the Maldives and it made my heart really burst because I was so proud of him. Oh my gosh that's amazing I mean truly I could I'm, I'm going to keep going because I'm so fascinated. I could hear you talk forever. Tell me a little bit about what uh, life was like when you moved to the press group in Hong Kong. Yeah, so after, you know, five or six years for working for Aman, a lot of the properties are in very remote locations um, uh, or, you know, countries where wine isn't um, super developed in that sense. So, you know, Bhutan, Sri Lanka, India, it was all kind of really kind of laying the groundwork for wine programs. And I was really keen to work in a city um, where there was more access to a broader range of wine and just more of a sommelier wine scene. Um, and so, yeah, I applied for the role of the wine director for the press room group, um, which has, um, well, at the time it had seven restaurants but it grew to 13 and had a broad cross-section of um, venues as well. So we had everything from restaurants with Michelin stars and big wine programs um, to, you know, more casual wine retail that was paired with cheese shops and things like that. Um, and so that was a really, yeah, that was just a, a phenomenal opportunity for me to have a lot more access to wine. Um, and I think, quite pivotal in that I got to open and try some of the world's most phenomenal wine in that sense. So, you know, the people with very deep cellars in living in Hong Kong um, and that are very generous and I was working in some of the best restaurants and so, you know, opening up dinners where they were doing flights of Petrus and, you know, there were, you know, there was Raveneau and Russo and all of this kind of stuff and I started to get a little bit kind of 
spoiled in a sense because you would know you would send your your assistant sommelier off. You'd be like, oh, could you go off to that restaurant? And they need to have all of that patrice tasted before they get here. Whereas, you know, in Sydney, you'd be like, I'm coming, I'm coming to taste it. Um, uh, but yeah, so um, that was pretty amazing and getting to really sink my teeth into Bordeaux and Burgundy and a lot of the classics in that sense. Um, so yeah, I got a lot of experience on that front when I lived in Hong Kong. Um, and so I was there for just over two years. Wow. I mean, I think one of the reasons I love talking to you so much about wine is because of your complete contrast of experience when you do talk about wine, you can talk about it with anybody being very accessible, but then you can, you know, hold your own in any conversation with any master sommelier in the world. Speaking of that, you work with some amazing and very prestigious names at uh, Shaw and Smith. What has your experience been like with working with such an incredible team um, from winemakers all the way up to um, founders? Yeah, I think what you mentioned there, that actually, that foundation really kind of came to me from being in the Maldives and being completely out of my depth. Um, and I used to host, we had a wine cellar there and I used to host a dinner once every week and the guests would, you know, would come and you would sit at the table with them and enjoy a meal with them and basically talk all of these people, um, through, you know, a full, you know, eight course meal with wines paired to it. And you would stay sitting at the table the whole night. Um, and so I think conversationally I grew um, on that front and really gained a lot of confidence in being able to, you know, talk to people that have their bazillion dollar yacht moored out the front and, you know, that are these high end executives. And at the end of the, at the end of the day, when it comes to the table, everyone's kind of, you know, everyone has their stories to tell and will has different kind of backgrounds, but it's all just at that point was about talking about food and wine and a, a, an equalizer in that sense. And so I think that kind of really helped me throughout my career as I kind of was talking to, you know, in Amman to like all of the fancy people that would come and sit at the tables that, you know, it was, you know, you had this, you had this expertise in wine, but you also wanted to make it always about having a conversation in that sense. And that was always really important to me and having it be, not um not having it be exclusive or anything in that sense um and so yeah i think when it came to coming home um and work finding someone that i wanted to work with in australia you have all of these amazing experiences and you think oh where am i going to work in australia um and that as a consultant when i was at shore and smith the thing i loved about going to Shore and Smith and being in meetings was that you weren't the smartest person in the room and I wasn't the second smartest person in the room or the third or the fourth or the fifth and it was just full of these amazing wine brains and people that I was like oh my gosh there's so much for me to learn about here again it's a whole nother um, it might not be necessarily, you know, vintage of, of Bordeaux or Burgundy or whatever on that front, but there's a whole other facet to the wine industry that I have to learn about here. And that's why I really love working with David and Michael and Martin and Adam. And there's just so much to learn on that front. And um, it's just about that transition within the wine industry. And I think that for a lot of sommeliers, they get into the business and they think, my goodness, I'm going to have to work on the floor forever. And what do I do if I don't necessarily 
want to work on a restaurant floor. And I think that transitioning off the floor is a whole thing in our industry and how to kind of have longevity in the industry. And I think that if you do want to stay in the wine industry, you do need to find ways to transition off the floor for some people, you know, some people love it and they thrive on it and they want to be on the floor every night. Um, but that wasn't necessarily me. Um, and I love that coming back to Australia has kind of being able to give me that opportunity to still work in an industry that I love with people that I love um, and do things that I'm passionate about. And so I still get to do lots of education with them. And Sean Smith is phenomenal at, you know, keeping us up to date and opening up great things. And they've got a deep cellar there. So we don't always just drink Sean Smith and on that scent, on that front. And so, yeah, I think that it's the perfect spot for me at the moment. That's definitely true, and and I completely agree with you that they they always tend to um, put education um, for themselves and for all of their team and for anyone tasting their wine is a really um, poignant part of the of how that they present themselves. Even if they've got a new release, it's always about showcasing them against international wines of the world. What is what's the favorite part about your job, and what keeps you doing what you do at the moment? Hmm, the favorite part. Um, I just, I really love working with our team, um, that we have there. Um, but I also love the amount of support that they give us. And I just always feel, um, really supported at Shore and Smith in that, you know, I'm just coming to the end of almost a year on maternity leave and I've had really great contact with them throughout the year. Um, and you know, the, the process of coming back to work has been really considerate, um, for me on that front. And I just think that it's the hallmark or the sign of a really strong business that, um, really wants to support their staff. Um, and yeah, I think that that just makes you want to work for them forever in that sense. Um, and so, yeah, I, I just feel really supported by them. And so I think that it makes you want to do good work for them. It makes you want to stay there. And um, I think that that is something really um, unique about Sharon Smith in that sense. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that couldn't be more true for the climate that we're in today is talking about how do we keep good people and how do we maintain good culture. So that's really nice to hear. Um, so what are you going to be doing this New Year's now that uh, it is going to look a little different from perhaps running around on a restaurant floor or uh, goodness knows the life that you've had, but uh, what, what's this New Year's going to look like for you? Oh, yeah, I'm a rager, Shante. <laughs> I love that that's the, the episode that I'm speaking to you about is the New Year's Eve episode. I'm like, I think you've chosen the wrong person for the New Year's Eve episode. I don't know if the one thing I can tell you is I won't make midnight. That's sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's that strange experience of, you know, having worked a zillion New Year's Eves, um, you know, and from the Maldives where it's like champagne fueled parties to, you know, romantic dinners and the underwater restaurant and all those kind of things to the kind of glitz of Hong Kong and what have you. And, you know, you come back to Australia and you're not on the floor anymore and you don't have to work Christmas and New Year's Eve all of a sudden. And it's like, what am I going to do with myself? And then there's all this like anticipation. You're like, I've got to go out. I've got to have one of these great New Year's Eves that I've been trying to create for people for all these years. And then you're like, yeah, no, I might just hang out with a few friends and, and be in bed early and not be trying to catch a taxi at midnight somewhere. 
Um, and so, yeah, it's pretty quiet for me on New Year's Eve, especially obviously this year with Kian. Um, I think that it will be doing good if I could make it to the nine o'clock fireworks. I'm sure that we'll just catch up with a few friends of mine that have kids as well. Um, and I'll make sure that there's some delicious champagne there. That's for sure. Um, but it won't be, it won't be anything too, um, outrageous. That's for sure. I think that, you know, often when we are working, it is actually a good place to be because, you know, you have a job to do, you make it all the way through past 12 o'clock because you aren't drinking for the entire night and so you get to see the fireworks you get to feel all the good vibes but you're also got a job to do i don't think many of us really would be going out if we if we have a new year's off so i don't uh, i don't think that's the worst thing in the world you know having a nice night with a few drinks and then um seeing and actually getting to see new year's day you know without a hangover is sounds like a pretty nice yeah. way to go for, for me too what a novelty, exactly. Work's always the great scapegoat for those kind of, you know, pivotal times of year when it's New Year's and you're like, yeah, I'm working, yeah, I'm working, can't go, sorry, yeah, I'm working. And then you're not working and all of a sudden you're like, gosh, I've got to do something fun. <laughs> uh, so what's happening in the new 2022 for you? What are, what are you looking forward to? What's exciting that's coming up for you that you can tell us about? Well, I've got a busy January, so I, I've sold my house. I live um, south of Sydney, um, actually close to you, as you know, um, and I am moving a little bit closer to the city, um, and so that's happening in January. Kian starting daycare, um, so that's a big one for me, um, and then I'll be back at work in February, um, February 1 kickoff um and yeah i will be uh there's a huge amount of stuff you know the sharon smith calendar is a really big busy um calendar and i just hope that we can get a lot of it executed this year you know it's a bit of start and stop um with everything that's going on um but yeah i really hope that we can you've got great things planned so i just hope we can get them done yeah i mean i think um, fingers crossed for everything, but I, I have a feeling 2022 is going to be uh, on the up and up, and that's for sure. Sean Smith, it's not like anybody's saying no to buying any of their wines because they're incredible. Um, but in terms of um, I like to always ask uh, one particular question at the end, uh, With and you get a choice actually today. You can either talk to me about three beverages yeah, exactly. <laughs> three beverages you'd drink for the rest of your life if you could only choose three or three aromas that represent kind of summer and new beginnings for you? Hmm. I might go with the beverages. It's a thirsty time of year. Um, uh, so I am definitely like if I had to choose one thing only to drink for the rest of my life, it would be Campari. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I would basically – I just want to drink Campari with everything. I want to drink Campari straight. I want to drink Campari with tonic water, with soda water, with grapefruit juice, you name it, I'm Campari. I could be Campari's, like, best brand ambassador. Um, Watch your space. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll wait to hear from you, Campari. Um, uh, but, yeah, no, I that is my beverage of choice. Um, uh, and then I would say champagne. Um, and then I would say Nebbiolo would be my third beverage of choice but Nebbiolo from everywhere so I don't just necessarily want to drink Barolo 
but um, I think Australia is making some really cool stuff now and um, yeah so bit bit from everywhere. We've covered all your bases I think that's good you've got something refreshing you've got something that's serious and brooding and you've got Campari for all occasions which um, I mean I I can murder a Campari spritz so I I totally feel you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah yeah it's the ultimate thirst quencher but they you drink them a little bit too fast I reckon that's the problem. (laughs) Very true. Well, Kavita, I have loved being able to catch up with you. I hope that it's in person very soon. Um, thank you for making the time. And look, I have to say, I think your New Year's Eve plans sound really delightful. At uh, 3 a.m. when I'm still polishing glasses, I'll be thinking of you and uh, wishing we could swap places. So, <laughs> Oh, my gosh, I will have been asleep for like five hours by then. <laughs> Kavita, thank you for making the time. I really, uh, really enjoyed it. And uh, heaps of love to you and Kian, and hopefully we'll speak to you soon. Yeah, Happy New Year and wishing you all the best for 2022 as well. Cheers to you. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at overaglasspod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.